Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode, part of the Apologetic series, posted November 23rd, 2020, titled, Evidence for the Resurrection that Changed the Generation of Scholars. So we're not talking about everybody, every new atheist who has no training, doesn't specialize in any particular area, or doesn't particularly specialize in a relevant area, and they just go off. I don't just go off. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. I have an answer. You know, it just... It's like a joke. It's a cartoon. I may be a cartoon, but this is no joke. Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. If you're new to the channel, why not take a second to tap on the subscribe button so that you'll be notified when new science, theology, and news videos come out. Recently, there was an Apologetics Mega event called Jesus on Trial, including such names as Lee Strobel, Josh McDowell, Sean McDowell, Dan Wallace, Michael Kona, and Gary Habermas. Because the planned live event became a virtual event, it allowed me to attend remotely. And the session that convinced me to do so was provocatively titled Evidence of the Resurrection that Changed a Generation of Scholars with Dr. Habermas. I'm very familiar with Gary's minimal facts argument for the resurrection, often used by amateur apologists in debates. But what had Gary unearthed to alter the course of a whole generation of scholars? The core facts, what I came to call the minimal facts, facts which critics allow, contain enough data to conclude that Jesus was probably raised from the dead. Now, that's what I'm going to do for tonight. <sighs> While it was very disappointing to sign up and not hear anything new, I was invigorated by Gary's chest beating, claiming that his ideas go entirely unchallenged. Okay. How do how do non-Christian historians explain these six facts? What uh, hypothesis do, do they you want? The, you want the number one response? Yes. Here it is. Something really happened. Frankly, Nikita. I don't know what happened. It's a mystery, but something happened. You go, well, thanks a lot. And the reason you're not going all the way is because you can't stand to admit to yourself that it might be the resurrection. That's what they're going to say. I was a Christian and was very happy proclaiming a resurrection. I went looking for the facts that would affirm my faith, not destroy it. Ascribing motivation to someone's conclusions is shaky ground. Everybody says something really happened. I don't really know what it was. I guess you would say that. If you, you know, if you give an answer to that, you can get yourself in trouble. Well, I'm not afraid of getting in trouble. Last year, I put forth my own hypothesis in a video called How Christianity Probably Began, No Resurrection Required. And I'm very happy to subject it to anything Gary can put forth in this presentation which lays out his best counters to skeptics. If you haven't already, 
please tap on the link over my head to go see the full 7 minute video outlining my position. But we'll do a rapid high level overview refresher here before we jump into Gary's lecture. <clears throat> Around 30 AD, the Middle East was littered with apocalyptic preachers including one Jesus of Nazareth. This Jesus said or did the wrong things at the wrong times to the wrong people and was crucified on a cross, a routine practice at the time. As was standard Roman procedure for the crucified, Jesus' body was thrown into an unmarked mass grave outside of town. Jesus had some followers while he was alive, but most disappeared into lives never recorded by reliable history, never to be heard from again. All except Simon Peter, and possibly John. Devastated after the death of his mentor, Peter may have suffered post-bereavement hallucinatory experiences, or PBHE. Regardless of the reason, political, advocational, or personal, Peter continued to preach in Jesus' name. At some point, Jesus' brother James joined the cause, along with one of the Johns. The stories about Jesus began to spread, not primarily by Peter, but rather through person-to-person -person evangelism of the day. The story growing with each telling. A few years later, Saul was persecuting Christians. Perhaps because of post-traumatic stress from guilt, or perhaps other factors, he suffered a psychotic break of sorts, manifesting in a vision of the leader of the group he was harming. As such trauma can impose, Paul did a 180. Peter, Paul, and John once met to swap ideas, but they didn't actually see eye to eye on things. After several decades, Greek-speaking people who never met Jesus nor Peter began writing down stories that had circulated about Jesus and these sayings attributed to him. These fragments and traditions were compiled into quite a few Gospels, each adding new supernatural elements to the basic story. Most early Christians concentrated on community, living peacefully in a pluralistic society that generally left them alone. But some were troublemakers and occasionally suffered consequences for disruptive behavior. Eventually, Christianity became the Roman Empire's first official religion, which is when it really took off into the institution we know today. In short, to account for the established history of Christianity, we need only a single disciple to claim Jesus rose, a later convert who hallucinated the same, and a well-marketed legend to spread. Every aspect of this story is mundane, boring, and uncontroversial. As we go through Gary's lecture, we'll see if he presents any evidence that contradicts it, or that would require supernatural intervention. So if I'm going to give a, a title to this message tonight, you might call it six plus one. I'm going to use six very likely historical facts plus one that meet, that still, facts that still meet the criteria. All right. What kind of facts meet these criteria? Let me give you six and plus one, but first let me tell you what the two criteria are. The first one is, I will use no fact, no historical fact that is not attested by many different evidences. We'll probably disagree on many, and I'm not a fan of the word evidences, but okay so far. The second point is that because these facts are so well accredited, virtually every scholar there is will admit them. This seems reasonable on its face, though Gary admits. Scholarly agreement does not prove or disprove a fact. You can't do a head count and say this happened because everybody agrees. My primary objection with Gary leaning on consensus is that he claims to have a massive database of scholarly surveys. Well, I'll say because I did the head count. I went back years ago and I started in 1975. I mean, I've read 
many, 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 many things going all the way back to early liberalism in 1800. But my survey went from 1975 to the present. And I asked the question, what are critical scholars saying? But he refuses to publish this data anywhere. His assertions about what the data says is entirely hearsay, unless he actually allows the data to be examined by others. Why should I accept his numbers if I can't see them? He knows this, and he could solve it immediately, but he refuses to do it. Until then, keep your numbers to yourself, Gary. As you say, they're not relevant. Fact number one, Jesus died according to the strictures, according to the treatment known as crucifixion. Gary spent a lot of time on this, but we won't waste ours, because I also agree that Jesus died. Pretty trivial, and already part of my hypothesis. Next fact, the disciples had experiences that they thought were appearances of the risen Jesus. When phrased this way, I don't object per se, but it first requires an extremely important clarification. Which disciples? All 12? Or all 11 without Judas? At no point in the New Testament does any of the 12 write down that they had such an experience. According to the church tradition, Peter is the source behind the stories found in the Gospel of Mark, but Mark contains no resurrection appearances of Jesus. Even if I granted that Peter wrote First and Second Peter, though I normally would not, Neither of those books talk about resurrection appearances either. We have nothing firsthand from Peter. The case that a disciple named John wrote the Gospel of John is also highly dubious. And the ambiguous passage most pointed to about witnessing something is about the death of Jesus, not a resurrection appearance of Jesus. And the rest of the disciples are even more silent. They're mentioned by name at the start of Acts, but never again. Which is why my hypothesis excludes them as irrelevant. We have no idea if the rest of the Twelve had any kind of resurrection experience at all. So, if we have no first-hand record of any of the disciples, why do I even leave Peter and John in my hypothesis? Good question. First, obviously someone had to be the first person to claim that Jesus rose from the dead to get that idea going before Paul could come on the scene and persecute them. Given everything, Peter seems like a prime candidate. Second, while few skeptics will put much stock in the Gospels, Gary rightly points out that The strictest critics there are, Bart Ehrman, Garrett Ludeman, they will let you use seven books written by Paul. Bart Ehrman calls them the unanimously conceded books. He says, one after another, these guys say nobody messes with these seven books. And I count myself in that group. I accept the seven so-called undisputed letters of Paul. One of those books they will unanimously let you use is the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul goes to Jerusalem at about 35 AD, Galatians 1, 18 to 20. He's interviewing Peter and James, the brother of Jesus. Okay. He says, 14 years later, I went back to Jerusalem. And this time, Peter's still there. James is still there. Of course, Paul's still there. And now John is there. In Galatians 1 and 2, Paul affirms that Peter and John are in Jerusalem acting as leaders in the church. Paul doesn't affirm what Peter and John experienced. We'll get into that later. But at least they stuck around and remained associated with Christianity. We can't say that with confidence for any of the rest of the ten. Why is that significant? Because these experiences have to be explained. How? To be clear, we're now talking only about the experiences of Peter, 
and John. When you explain what the disciples thought they saw, you have to explain sight. If Peter had a post-bereavement hallucination, as my hypothesis puts forth, then we've explained sight. You know, there's a lot of ways you can go with critiques of hallucination. But the most damaging one, and critics know this, is that you don't see hallucinations in groups. They don't? In the last 25, 30 years, whatever, there's not a single documented case of a group hallucination. That's not true. Groups see things all the time. You say, well, that's not true. Groups see things all the time. Yes, they do. Sometimes they see something and take it for something else. Sure, that's one way. There's also mass hysteria, implanted memories, false performance recollections, deliberate misdirection, illusion, delusion, leading conversations, and on and on. But I'm not hanging my hallucination hat on any of these. How do I explain group appearances? Simple. There weren't any. But at least four groups to Jesus, the twelve, all the apostles, the five hundred, and the women. Four groups. There are no first-hand accounts from the twelve. No first-hand accounts from the apostles. No first-hand accounts from the 500. No first-hand accounts from the women. No accounts, let alone the kind of corroborating accounts you'd be excited to have from a group. Nothing. We have stories that there were groups, but that's not the same as actual groups. There was a spaceship in Manhattan. We know because Peter Parker saw it. Don't believe that? Well, what if I told you that a whole bus full of kids saw it at the same time? No? I'm sorry, but adding more characters to the story doesn't make it any less a story. And even these stories aren't well attested. Other than the woman at the tomb tales, which vary wildly in each telling, none of the disciples, apostle, or so-called 500 at once appearances are even corroborated within the Bible. Each is a one-off. Part of the process I described where the legends of Jesus grew first in the oral traditions of early enthusiastic followers, and then continuing to expand in the written ones. You might be remembering that Gary Habermas insisted that this fact is attested to by nearly all scholars, including secular scholars. Let's review the precise wording. The disciples had experiences that they thought were appearances of the risen Jesus. The first believers believed. That's a mundane claim. But then Gary smuggles in the accounts of the New Testament, as if the scholars also agree with those details. They don't. A magician doesn't want you to get too close to his magic tricks. You could see things. But because the disciples were there, touch, feel, all this stuff, that would blow it up. Just like the magician he warns us about, Gary is employing classic misdirection. This is not juggling. This is called misdirection. He puts up a vague accepted statement as distraction so that we don't notice he's pulling in details from non-accepted gospel accounts out of his sleeve and representing them as equal evidential value to his audience when he knows they're not. So first, Jesus died by crucifixion. Secondly, the disciples thought they saw him again. Here is the newest one that has received the most attention in the last three or four decades. This proclamation came early, early, early. How early? I'm gonna skip over Gary's long tale of estimation as to when the gospels were written compared to the later dating of other ancient biographies. First, because- How does John sound at plus 60 compared to our friend King Alexander at plus 280. 60? 
280. I'll take 60. All this line of argumentation does is decrease my confidence in what we know about King Alexander, not increase what I think we should know about Jesus. And second, that gospel rabbit trail isn't actually Gary's point. Well, how early are the resurrection reports? Critics think that the resurrection reports, we have a number of them from one, here's Bart Ehrman, the atheist New Testament scholar, one to two years after the cross. One to two years after the cross. I'll grant this for the sake of argument. The reports about Jesus' resurrection were circulating one to two years after the cross. There's nothing about my hypothesis that needs to change to accommodate this. In fact, I could grant one to two weeks after the cross. Stories can begin to come exaggerated immediately. Misconceptions can happen immediately. What's my objection here, Gary? All right. So you got these early little snippets of information that you just think are so good. And you think they were birthed between one to two years after the cross, because even Gar uh, Gert Ludemann, Bart Ehrman, and a bunch of other skeptics concede it. How do you know they're not little fairy tale stories? If I could trace Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water, if I got that from Jack and Jill themselves, haha, uh -huh, joke, right? Well, if I could get that from Jack and Jill, it's only a story. I got it very, very early, but it's only a story. Exactly. Early doesn't mean true. And your response, Dr. Habermas? That means five to six years after the cross, he is interviewing for 15 days, it says, Galatians 1, 18 to 20. Ah, yes. The aforementioned apostolic get-together as told in Galatians 1. You'll recall that my hypothesis includes this detail. What does Gary think it tells us? What tells you that the creeds were not Jack and Jill went up the hill? How do you know the creeds weren't nursery rhymes? Because Paul interviewed the original eyewitnesses. He specifically tells us, I interviewed them on the nature of the gospel. The Greek verb in Galatians 1.18 is typically translated to meet, to see, get acquainted with, to visit, not interview. Gary is inferring more than the text says. He says, they added nothing to me. Five words in English. They added nothing to me. That means we're on the same page. Apologists always insist that they added nothing to me means that Peter and Paul were on the same page. I get a very different vibe from this passage when taken as a whole. Galatians 2.6, the verse Gary is cherry-picking from. As for those who were held in high esteem, later clarified as Peter and John, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. Whatever they were makes no difference to me. Paul is not deferential to Peter and John. He doesn't respect them or care about what they have to say. They added nothing to his message means that Paul didn't feel compelled to alter his preaching at all based on these conversations, no matter how they disagreed, despite the fact that the passage specifically talks about Peter and Paul disagreeing, not agreeing. In his intro to this story, Paul went out of his way to assure his readers that these disciples in Jerusalem were not the source for his preaching. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And a few verses later, they gave he and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. And two verses after that, Paul says that he opposed Peter to his face because he stood condemned. I leave this as a homework assignment for you to make up your own assessment. I think Galatians makes far more sense as a feud between Peter and Paul. 
In fact, some New Testament scholars speculate that Acts and First and Second Peter were written primarily as an attempt to heal the early church perception that Peter and Paul didn't agree on things, to smooth things over. Anyhow, you decide, because this is yet another tangent. Gary's fact isn't that Peter and Paul agreed on things. He knows he couldn't put that forth as a scholarly consensus. No, Gary's fact is that the resurrection reports are early. Fine, they're early. Because you could say, yeah, 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 we got these really, really, really early. And then the critic says, nursery rhymes. Oh, darn, I didn't cover that, did I? Okay, well, that's a hard objection. Yep. Number four, the disciples turned the world upside down, so we call transformation. They were transformed to being willing to die for the proclamation of the resurrection. Of the main facts Gary puts forth, this is probably the sketchiest. Dr. Sean McDowell, another speaker at this very conference, did his PhD dissertation on apostle martyrdom and is much more of a specialist in this area than Gary is. I had the pleasure of directly discussing these claims one-on-one with Sean on The Unbelievable Show, so I won't rehash it here. Check the video linked above my head if you'd like to get into the details. For today, the important question is, does this so-called fact contradict my hypothesis? Who specifically is Gary's claim referring to? We have martyrdom reports for three of the four. James, the brother of Jesus, by a secular source, Josephus. Clement and Paul, I'm sorry, Clement's the writer, and he reports the martyrdom of Paul and Peter at about 95 AD, about the same time John is written. So we have martyrdom reports for three of the big four. So Gary's putting forth martyrdom for three apostles, Peter, Paul, and James, the brother of Jesus. I'd like to quibble with him about the details, but it doesn't matter now. In my hypothesis, Peter and Paul were sincere, though mistaken, believers, and James's political assassination was unrelated to his ideology. Gary doesn't bother making a case for the disciples that disappeared from history, even though this fact may imply them to the uncareful listener. In all, no contradictions from this point. All right, facts five and six. Two skeptics become believers when they also believe they saw there isn't Jesus. Now, these two skeptics are James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul. This is mostly okay, but not fully. You'd find scholarly consensus that Paul and James, the brother of Jesus, were believers. You'd have consensus that Paul believed he saw Jesus. In fact, he's the only person in all of history who left behind a documented, first-hand statement saying that he saw resurrected Jesus. But what Gary's smuggling in here that you wouldn't get consensus on is that James was a skeptic. In Mark chapter 3 and in Mark chapter 6, we're told that Jesus' family agreed with the crowd. That's an inference found only in the Gospels. And more importantly, you wouldn't get a consensus that James claims to have seen the risen Jesus. James gives us no such report. Even if you take the book of James as actually written by James, it is silent on this matter. Only the hearsay creed, quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, makes this claim. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7, says, Jesus appeared to three individuals, Peter, James, and then Paul adds his own name at the end. And it's not even original to Paul. He got it from others. As we've already discussed, this mantra being potentially early doesn't help us at all to know if it's true. 
I point this out mainly to show again that Gary is very willing to blur the lines between what is consensus and what are Bible details. If we're looking at the basic view here, Paul came to believe, and James the brother of Jesus came to believe, yeah, my hypothesis handles this just fine. Using only the letters of Paul that Gary said he would use, you would absolutely conclude that Paul's experiences were visions or revelations. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul admits that whether his encounters with Jesus were in the body or out of the body, he does not know. And we simply don't know what James believed or how he came to be convinced. Was he taking the resurrection as true based on the word of Peter? On the convincing stories of other early believers? Did he come to think that he himself saw his resurrected brother? And if so, might this have been a false performance recollection? Implanted memory or other faulty memory phenomenon? Facilitated by spending time with others who were similarly self-convinced? Anything we might say about James is speculation, no matter what position you take. In any case, Paul and James being believers is entirely consistent with my hypothesis. That's the six consensus facts. But Gary seems to want to chat about his plus one. Seventh fact, once again, I'll repeat, often get misunderstood here. I do not call the minimal fact, neither Mike nor I, Mike Lacona, when we did the book together, and since we're good friends and we do things together, um, we don't include, we don't think the, minimum, the empty tomb is a minimal fact, but it's pretty close. Because on the evidence, it's as good as any of them. But not every scholar concedes it, and that's our second criterion. All right, the empty tomb. I have several videos already on why scholars do not concede an empty tomb. You can tap on the link above my head for a playlist on this. But the short version is that the evidence for said empty tomb is entirely... My hypothesis puts forth the far more likely scenario that Jesus would have been treated like most other crucifixion victims and have been thrown into a mass grave. Even Gary will admit this is the most common scenario. I would concede, and many would, that that's what happened to most people. Now, I won't deny that some crucifixion victims were sometimes put in tombs, but without any evidence to the contrary, the more common case for Jesus is obviously an incredibly plausible scenario that explains the data. Gary's right. The empty tomb is not a historical fact. Your argument is that the resurrection explains these historical facts best, much better than any other explanation. Yeah, and even better than the best explanation, I think they show direct data for the resurrection. Is a miraculous resurrection really the best explanation for the facts Gary presented? Or is my very boring, very mundane, very reasonable explanation just as good, without relying on the supernatural to make it happen? Let me know your thoughts in the comments, and then tap on the thumbnail on screen to look at more of these Christian claims in greater detail. I'll see you over there. Later.